would you rather live peaceably or in turmoil? Everybody who would rather live in turmoil than peaceably, raise your hand. So, all right, so, so does that mean everybody would rather live peaceably? Would you do that if you had to live in sin to live peaceably? You want to live peaceably if you have to sin We started a study last week of the church and family. Why is it that we relate? Why do we relate? How do the church and the family relate? We looked at the introduction to the big question, how, how do these two institutions relate? Since the church is eternal, the family is not. We looked at the created order last week. Looked at the fact that um, Adam in the garden was competent to take care of the garden and God still said that's not good for him to be alone and so it was God's idea to give him a helper we looked at the fact that these two male and female are both made in God's image equal but with separate roles they are one flesh literally Adam and Eve were one flesh she was taken from his flesh and so when they were joined in marriage, it was a reunion of that flesh. And so when we come together in marriage, we rehearse that reunion of the one flesh. And so the Bible says that this is a one flesh thing. We looked at God's marriage law in Genesis 2.24. Quoted a couple times in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul. God's law of marriage is that it should be monogamous, that it should be a heterosexual relationship between one man one woman it requires fidelity it in, it requires durability it requires complementarity that is each partner in the relationship has a unique role but they're not identical roles but the fall in Genesis 3 disrupted that order and in fact since then our imaginations have run wild with ways to violate God's law of marriage so now we've got uh, homosexual union. We have fornication, which is a biblical word for sex outside of marriage. We have adultery. We have polygyny. You see examples of it, 15 or 16 examples of it in Scripture. Not a single one of those works out well. But then we read about God restoring order, restoring his original order, and he's doing that now through the church. So marriage is a picture. It's a picture that we experience until we actually have the reality. That's why it's a temporary thing. It's just a picture until Christ comes for his bride and we get to experience the real deal. Um, in Matthew twenty-two thirty, the Sadducees have been trying to trick Jesus, and so they give him this big story about man, and he dies, and his brother, and his brother, and goes on down. And Jesus said, well, you didn't even get the question right. You didn't get the question right. Because in the resurrection, there is no marriage. Showing us that family is a temporal thing. He does promise that whatever relationships we have there will be better than the best marriage, which is wonderful. Uh, in Romans 7, Paul 
is addressing the situation of a widow and says that if she is going to remarry, or no, uh, sorry, back up. Romans 7 is Paul talking about marriage so that when a, one of the partners dies, the marriage bond is ended. And so then he says she can then remarry. It's not adultery for her to remarry because the marriage bond is broken at death. In Ephesians 5, which we're going to look at tonight, open up to Ephesians 5, we're going to uh, start in verse 22, we're looking at this marriage picturing an eternal relationship. I'm going to read this in just a moment, if you can turn there. The, the picture that we see in Scripture of Christ and His church is distorted by our sinful relationships already listed some of those things uh, it's distorted by interfaith marriage in Deuteronomy Moses on behalf of God tells the people don't marry when you go into that land don't marry people of other faiths why is that why did Moses say don't do that I'm sorry purity purity of what yeah purity of the faith because if they married off to these foreigners who worship false gods the temptation is to follow the false gods instead of the one true God um, Paul gives us an example in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says that a woman who's going to marry a woman in the church in the faith who's going to remarry after her husband dies needs to marry in the faith, in the Lord, he calls it. But I think that principle extends to us all. If you're going to marry, marry in the faith. But Paul recognizes that's not always the situation. He says, don't divorce just because you have different faith, right? In that same passage, he talks about singleness. We're talking about marriage, talking about family in the church, but singleness is actually a gift given to some by God for purpose of serving the bride. That's a gift that is given to some. Some would argue that gift is only given to men. I'm not sure about that, but the, the, somehow Paul says, like him, singleness is a gift given by God so that one can serve the bride. And so singleness ought to be celebrated, whether that's for a season or whether that's for a lifetime. If God has given someone a gift of singleness, that's something to be celebrated by the church rather than to be looked down upon. However, the norm, that's only a gift for certain individuals. The norm is that we would be married, and Paul says we ought to do that within the church. But let's look at how these ought to relate, husbands and wives. Somebody start us out in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 22. We're going to read from 22 down to 33, which is the end of chapter 5. So... If someone would be willing to read all those verses, that would be wonderful. If not, we can divide it up. But whenever you read, read it in an out loud voice, not a quiet inside your head voice.
Thank you. Where does Paul get this from? Where, where? He says that, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where does he get that? Genesis, right, in the creation story, Genesis 2, right? One flesh, why are they one flesh? I'm sorry? From Genesis, right. Where's he? he gets that idea from Genesis. Uh, when, when Jesus talks about divorce, where does he go? Genesis. Genesis really answers the questions. If we don't get the questions right or the answers right in Genesis, we miss the whole rest of the story. Um, all right, so Paul says that wives, these things, husbands, these things. Why does he have to tell us that stuff? Should, I mean, isn't that stuff natural for us? No. In, in fact, it is, it is very unnatural. Right? And why is that? Well, hold your place here and flip back to Genesis chapter 3 because... Right after the Genesis 2 wonderful story, you realize that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, we would have like two and a half chapters of a Bible. We could all memorize that. Instead, we've got to have 66 books because of sin. So, um, Genesis 3, the distortion in marriage began with the fall of humanity, right? It, so it's, it's the image bearer of God going against the original God himself, and, and bad things come about because of that. Look in verse 10. Here's their, their very first reactions, right? So that they fall, all of a sudden things are not good anymore. In verse 10, What's Adam say was their first reaction? Why are they hiding from God as if that's a good plan? Afraid. The distortion, the marring of the image of God, the confusing the picture of God and his people. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the evening. He spent time with his people. They distorted that so that God separated himself put them out of the garden. God put a distance between them. Now they've got to come with sacrifices. Now there, there's, there's all these things that we have to do to be able to approach God because they distorted this picture. The first thing is they are afraid. Verse 10. Somebody read verse 10 for us. Listen to the pronouns here. God comes looking for him, says, hey, uh, where, where are you guys? And Adam, like, oh, we're right here. Who's he talking about? Who's that? What, what's the pronoun that shows up over and over in that verse? I, 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 I. This relationship that Adam and Eve had with God is now messed up. Even the relationship in their marriage is messed up. Now it's not we. Now it's, well, I this. 
deny that. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Lost my place. There we go. Yeah, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. She did it. And the Lord God said to the woman, uh, what have you done? The woman said, oh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. They're blaming God for their, for their disobedience. They're blaming each other. So Adam points to her. She points to the snake. Both of them, they say, you're the one that put them there. Why, why did you do that is the implication. Their marriage is messed up. It's so messed up that God made it difficult. The consequences of their sin is that their roles now become difficult. The things that they were created for have become difficult for them, have become painful for them. So God provided everything they needed so that he could be the leader so that she could be the helper, and they blow it. And so to cover up their incompetence now, they have reactions. And we see that come all the way through all their children, down through the, the generations, down to you and me. He abdicates his leadership role in the home. Why? Because, yes, sir. Right, and so he's point right. So, so the the comment is in in verse or in chapter two, we see Adam rejoicing. He's like, "Hey, yowza, I like this one." She's, you know, had had all the critters come by. They're kind of cool. I named them all, but wow, that one. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's woman because she's taken from man. He's really excited about that. And one chapter later, it's like that woman that you gave me. Yeah, right. Yeah, now Adam, who was walking with God, we don't know how many days, years passed. In, we just know that they had this intimate relationship with God, and now they don't because of sin. They don't, and they don't have a good relationship with each other. Men now, typically, studies show this over and over again, abdicate their leadership role in the home because it's difficult. Because everything that we're supposed to be doing has become difficult to do. And so we just say, eh, we'll do something else. Instead of finding our identity there, now we find our identity at the things we think we're competent at. Men who go to the golf course think they're competent. Stand next to Tiger Woods, I don't think so. But, but, but they think they're competent. In their minds, they're competent as it. They think they're competent at their job, and so they find their identity in their job. They find identity somewhere other than in this relationship, this one flesh relationship 
with their wife with this intimate relationship with the creator abdicating a role finding our identity somewhere else her world is a mess because the one that was supposed to protect her left her stranded what safety she was supposed to experience in the home she can't from the very beginning she can't experience safety because her man let her down her role in childbearing becomes painful all these things because of the fall and so what does God say is going to happen she's just going to take charge so rather than be disappointed by her husband and her world she's going to take charge and it takes us back to the first question can you live peaceably in sin yeah in marriage you can live a peaceable marriage by him abdicating his role letting her be in charge by her not trusting by her doing what she needs to do to keep herself safe to always feel safe well I, I need I need these skills in case something happens I because I, I can't trust that he's going to be here I can't trust that when we have kids he's gonna stick around I can't trust these things and so she starts building shelter for herself it, it, it depends on how you look at them it can feel very it can feel very peaceful if he's gone all day doing the thing that he finds his identity in it's hard to be in conflict this can give the appearance of a peaceful living situation, but it is in sin because it's not, it's not what God designed it to be. The marriage relationship is no longer a picture. Instead of it's a picture of Genesis 3. So God does something about that, and that's where we get Ephesians 5. So flip back over there. Ephesians 5. God's not going to leave us with the consequences he sent his son 2,000 years ago so that we can overcome those consequences he's providing a restoration for the roles that he created us for so that there is sanctification in the marriage relationship but sanctification requires change and change is turmoil so are you willing to live a seemingly peaceable life in sin or do you want to be sanctified and experience turmoil so those are the two options you have you can't remain like you are and be sanctified be made more Christ-like so so what do we see in um, these first verses in chapter 5 verses 22 through 24 how how are these verses providing a way for her to be sanctified to overcome the consequences of Genesis 3. What do you see there?
Right. But what we were told in 2000, when the Baptist Faith and Message came out, is that submit is a four-letter word. I mean, is submission really a terrible thing? I, what does submitting do for us? I mean, because we, as the church, submit to Christ, do we not? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? How is it a good thing? Yeah, but I don't like to be humbled. That's not a good thing. I'm a, okay, all right. Okay. It, it's good for us to know our place. And submitting to him automatically puts us in our place, right? One of the my favorite verses to share with doctoral students when, when I help them with their research is uh, from the Psalms where God says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> God doesn't need anything we have to offer. Not a thing. So, so the fact that we get to give him something, the fact that we get to serve him, the fact that we get to be part of the bride is just grace. It's not because he needs us. It's not because he needs anything from us. It's because he loves us. He pours his grace out on us and, and just delights in watching his children, his church, do his work. He delights in that. He could do it better without us. Just like dads can, can do the stuff in the, the wood shop better than they can do it with the little sons, but, but it, it's, there's delight in watching the child do this thing. That's the kind of delight that the father has in seeing us do this stuff. Randy. Proverbs 12, 4 tells what this really looks like. When she fulfills her role, when she's the helper, she submits to the leadership of her husband who is going to fail her. She, she just has to get that in her mind. He's going to fail her. Yeah, yeah. And she still submits to him lovingly. Why? Because it's a picture of Christ and his church. So we want to, we want to show the world that picture Proverbs 12, 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. The opposite of that, that she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The whole, most of Proverbs 31 is about this, this wife that is just the, the ideal. That's what you get when Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 happens in the home. That's what you get is is a picture where she brings glory to God. How about for the guys? <laughs> and, and, and in fact, Paul makes it look like that, doesn't it? Because there, there's three verses to wives, and there's a whole long section to the guys, right? <laughs> So what's he to be doing? 
how is God sanctifying him? He sanctifies her by showing her how glorious submission is. Even when, he's gonna, even when the guy is going to fail her, she submits. What's it look like for the man? Yeah. Recognizing one flesh. Recognizing this. You should love her as your own body. Why? Because she is. No, nobody hates his own body, right? I mean, there are some sickos out there, but, but the normal person doesn't hate himself. The normal man doesn't hate himself. So why would he do anything other than love his wife like, his, like himself, like his own body? Because that's what she is for him. So what else do we see the guy having to do? What, what is it that God is doing in the sanctification process? How does he make the man look more Christ-like? Just through the marriage relationship. How does he do that? So the old king of the castle thing. Yeah. This isn't the king of the castle. This is the servant of the home. He, he serves because his family is part of him. He ought to be serving them, not lording over them, not doing things that hurt them, not doing things that neglect them. If, if he does that, he is being made Christ-like. That's what Paul says God is wanting to do for him. In this marriage relationship, he's wanting to grow husband and wife to be better image bearers. To reflect that picture of God better so that the relationship shows what it's really like for the church to relate to her bridegroom. Twenty-six. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What? What? What is he doing for her? What? What is the husband doing for her? If he's going to help sanctify her, because that's what this is. If he's going to help sanctify her, how does he do that? Yeah. He's got to be in this word. And then he's got to live this word. Not just know it, but to live this thing out. It's turmoil, though. Yeah. Yeah, great word. Yeah. Right, right. Husbandry is tending other things. It's not, it's not ruler of, of the home. It's 
the one who pinned others. So he is to do that. Now, next week, we're going to look at how he's going to do that with children. But right now, he's doing it with his wife. So he is trying to help sanctify her. That's why he's in the relationship. That's why Christ has joined these two together is so that he can sanctify her. She's in the relationship so that she can sanctify him. How does she do that? By yielding, by submitting to his leadership even when he's failing, even when he's incompetent at it. She submits. He's sanctified because he grows in that. It's like, oh, man, this is real. Like, she's really not going to take over. i, I got to do something. And so he's going to fall on his knees. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Right. Even when he's an unbeliever, her work is sanctifying him. So are you willing to put up with the turmoil in the home? Are you willing to help sanctify? If you're in a marriage relationship, are you willing to help sanctify, to be used of God to sanctify the other, knowing that the other is working to sanctify you? It's turmoil. It, it's painful because we're growing, because we're changing, because we're giving off all those natural tendencies and now we're going to Christ-like tendencies. What's it? Go ahead and read that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in, studying, in studying for this uh, six weeks, it, it really looks like Peter's giving us a lot of the whys. Paul tells us what. Peter fills in the same sorts of discussion with, well, why would you do that? Um, and so, yeah, so the two of them together, never contradicting each other, but in concert are, can help us. We only have about 35 minutes on Wednesday nights. I can't cover every epistle that covers this stuff. And so trying to highlight some of the things. If you go out hungry and want to study more, hooray. <laughs> then, then I, as a teacher, have done the right thing by you. If you leave here, it's like, I am fed up with that. Then I have failed you. So uh, fire me, and we'll put somebody else up here on Wednesday night. Um, are you willing to to be sanctified so that we as the church can show the world what it really looks like for God to relate to his people. And next week, we're going to look at one of the purposes of marriage, and that is procreation. That is another mode of sanctification through turmoil, <laughs> as the pastor shared <laughs> this evening in the prayer request. It is turmoil raising actual or potential brothers and sisters in Christ because they make messes and they make our life messy and while we could maybe structure everything so that um, in, in Virginia when I was 
there in school. They had the up and down Christians, our pastor said. They were up to the mountains and down to the river. So up to the mountains in the summertime or in the wintertime and down to the river in the, the uh, summertime. And they just had nice little lives apart from the church, apart from family, apart from the kids. So we're going to look at kids next week. God says, be fruitful, multiply. We're going to look at how that works out for our sanctification. So real quick, so what for the church? I mean, if this is, if the whole six weeks is about the church and the family and how they relate, so what? If this is what husbands and wives ought to be doing, so what for the church? We're on display world's looking in at us so so what And, and, and that's in, indeed the context in which this discussion takes place. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. And look at the spiritual warfare that goes on. That's really the context for all of this. The liberal church hates this church. Which may be one and the same. I mean, but I, I will not opine on that. <laughs> Yeah. So so what's the church have to do with that? That that's me in my home. That's a great that's a great word for men in the home. So what's the church have to do with that? Yeah, the, the church is made up of men and women and children that have come to faith, right? The, these are the relationships that we're going to find in the church. So what? There you go. That's, that's a, at least a ground rule double, if not an in-the-park home run. The church is to come alongside all these families. How do we do that? By older men, by older couples coming alongside younger couples. By each of us pouring into each other's lives. Not putting on our faces, putting on our coats and ties, and coming Sunday morning with our faces on that says, everything's fine. Because it's not fine. None of us have reached the point that we are totally sanctified. So until that day, which is when Christ returns, we need to be holding each other accountable. We as the church need to be pouring into the lives of everyone that's a part of this body. So Fisherville needs to own family. Needs to pour into families. Why? Because then families are the tool that go out. The family is the first evangelistic body that God uses. But we are out of time. But uh, thank you all for your discussion this evening.
Next week we'll look at the how we are sanctified in the parent-child relationship because that turmoil has a purpose for God's kingdom. It has a purpose for the church and it has a responsibility for the church. Let's pray. Father